Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This week's guest is Bianca Resch, sporting director for FC Bayern München's women's team. She is a former professional football player that knows how it is to win big games, both for club and country. In 2005, she was announced as the first German national team player ever to play in the Swedish league, the Damalsvenskan, to represent Sunano IK. In this episode, Resch shares her story about football, how she fell in love with the sport as a child, how it was to play for Germany, and what happened after her career ended. Resch started to coach, but decided that right there and then, that might not be for her. Today, she is the sporting director for Germany's biggest club and one of the most up-and-coming in Europe within the women's game. You are listening to their pitch, and this is the Bianca Resch episode. Hello and welcome to Their Pitch, uh, Bianca Rech. How are you doing? Good. Thanks for inviting. Thank you for thank you for being on. I we usually have people come on here and pronounce their their name, and I feel like I really, really, really butchered your last name. So I'm gonna have you pronounce it for me. Your full name. Well, it's I think it's you did it quite good. It's like Bianca Rech. Rech. Bianca Rech. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. Now you say my name. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Bianca, we have we we usually start off with a quote from somebody who knows you very well, um, and you're gonna have to guess who it is, and then plus points if you get it on the first try. Oof. I'm really thankful that I played together with Bianca, and as a young player, learning a lot from her. She was a leader and fighter on the field. Years later, I have to say that the work Bianca is doing at FC Bayern Women and the way she forces the development of women's soccer in general is impressive. Oh, oh wow. <laughs> That's that's not an easy one, you know. After like telling uh. with a young in my young age, and she put a little, oof. That's hard. That's hard. I have to get a hint. I think uh, central defender. Oh, Karina. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, Karina. True. Yeah, I forgot that we played with each other because she was so young. But that's true. Yeah, she was seventeen when we met first time. <laughs> yeah. Oh. No, she's uh, she. We we had her on the podcast. We think she's great. Yeah, she's an amazing person. I think um, she's. I always say she's iconic. She's an idol, um, and she's a real. Yeah, she's a real legend for Bayern Munich. I have to say, like playing 15 years for for a club like this. Um, yeah, that says a lot about her and her person and her character. How, how is it to see a player like her leave the club? Oh, to be honest, I was quite sad. But on the other hand, I was really, really happy for her. We had, um, yeah, very, lo- we have a lot of conversation about, you know, how her future could look like. And after being in a, you know, in a, in a club for such a long time, um, and you're, yeah, you had, the, you have the feeling that you maybe want to explore something, something else, which from our point of view, we totally understand, um, the situation and, um, yeah, I was happy to see her like doing so well in Roma. Um, and we just recently had a, had a talk with each other about how her future looks like maybe. So no, I'm, I'm really happy for her and I'm really happy for her that she made that step to Roma and, you know, get to know something else and a new environment. Um, and I'm, I'm really proud of her. And we're, we're gonna, you know, this podcast is basically about, you know, you as a person, your, your playing career when you used to play and as well as, you know, moving on from, from a career in, in a footballer to being, you know, a sporting director and everything that comes with it. But I want to touch on your foot, your footballing career as a player. How, how come you started, you know, started out with football and why was that? So why was that the sport you fell for? 
Well, maybe I was born as a football player, probably, because the only thing I can uh, I can remember that, um, yeah, I was living next to the football field. And uh, for me, there was nothing else um, apart from football. It was a little bit like athletic, I think. Uh, but my parents both played football. So, yeah, my way to the football field made it quite easy. Uh, they always dragged me to the football field and I was uh, growing up on the football field. So I started playing with, I think it was in an age of five years old. Like playing with the boys, um, like in, in like very young, um, and I loved it. And I saw, I think in between the first time I kind of managed and get to know female, other female football players, I was probably 12 and I'm like, well, I don't want to play for the girls. I want to play with my boys. So I don't, I don't want to play with girls. So it was quite funny. But uh, for me, there was, it was never a problem. I've always um, played with the boys teams and it was nothing special it was nothing different for me the people around me never saw it as something special so it was just normal how how is it to you know because i do see some people that still you know they still preach about having girls play with football until a certain age because that's when they think that that's a great development for for a girl for girl players um why do you think that is the way and, and how do you think that helped you in your career? I would say there are two different paths. Like the one path is just playing with, with the boys as long as you can. I think from my experience, I would always say it's a really good way to improve and to develop. But the other way is possible as well. Um, you know, sometimes, you know, they don't feel as comfortable, you know, in, in, in the boys team, um, which is which is fine too. And they can develop um, on the other pathway. But uh, for me, um, to, to be honest, it really helped me to to grow as a person as well. Uh, I always had to fight a little bit harder than the others. Um, at one point, you know, I was a little bit slower than the others and uh, which is like nature. Um, but uh, yeah, I was, I was, I always say I was a little boy as well. I never saw myself different from, from my boys in, in, in the team. So for me, it was just normal growing up with them. But, um, yeah, when I had to stop, I was really sad. I didn't like it. Um, but yeah, I, I think in my career, it really helped me to, um, to grow and get on my pathway. Yeah. So, so players now, you know, coming up, uh, being, you know, in, in their teenage years, they, they can dream about, you know, they, they can dream about playing for these big, big clubs and the, their national team. How was it for you growing up, uh, you know, um, as a kid dreaming of playing professionally? Yeah, the first time I got in touch with being able to play for some, you know, regional teams or whatever, I was like 14. Um, I was invited for the first time for youth national team with an age of 14, 15. That was my first time um, that, you know, there's something more outside than just like our little boys team. Um, and then... Yeah. And then it was my, for, at, at the time, I really realized that I'm being able to play football on, let's say, on a, on a bigger level. I was 16 and then I played for the first league team, um, in my hometown. Um, yeah. And then there was not so many possibilities, right? You had like the first league. There was a big goal for me. Um, it was a big goal for play for the A national team. And then you had like, yeah, what, like the German team, like Frankfurt was one of the biggest teams. Uh, and then the U.S. was a big part at that time. You know, I saw a lot of players going to the U.S. from the um, from the national team. So that was like, say, the two big leagues you could play in. And then Sweden was a part. And I mean, I left Germany for Sweden at one point. Uh, but that's what these three leagues were really, really on the list and on the on the on the map, and not nothing else really compared to today. To today. Um, wow. I would love to have these choices, you know, to go to Barcelona or to Madrid or to Paris, um, or even to England. I think it's, there are so huge opportunities now for players and, um, even for young players to, to having a career and to, to see what, what is possible. Um, yeah. Sometimes I would love to being a bit younger. <laughs> yeah. No, because I think I think that's I think that's one of the major differences, you know, from you know playing early two thousands to playing now. Um, but how how you know how was it for you to represent the national team and then also win a Champions League title with with your club? How, how was that? Oh, crazy! Um, I always uh, I always see myself because I played uh, my first A national team in Norway. Uh, I think it was two thousand and two. 
um, you know, to, to listen to the German uh, national anthem and, and standing there with the jersey and the first 11 team, that was something really, really special for me. And I felt, wow, that's, that's really a privilege here. Um, yeah. And then, uh, yeah, I loved it. I loved playing football. It, it was always my, yeah, it was my passion and still is my passion. So, um, and winning titles with the Frankfurt team at that time, uh, you know, champion, German championship cup games and then champions league. That's something special, which really, um, I would say was part of my, my career and which built, was built on my career as well in, in a very young age. How, how different is it for you? How different is it for you as a, a sporting director uh, compared to being a player experiencing, you know, the league title races or the Champions League race? I still get stressed. <laughs> no, I, it's sure it's different. I'm, I'm not on the pitch. You know, you can't run on the pitch and help the team. You, you just can do everything you can until the game is go, is uh, starting. Um, and, you know, trying to build the team, um, around and on the pitch. Um, so that, that's the work. But when the game is on, I'm still, you know, like, like being motivated and, uh, yeah, and get stressed and nervous. That's, I think that's pretty normal. Uh, and, uh, I still feel, you know, the emotions. So, uh, I still get goosebumps, you know, when I'm walking into the Allianz Arena and hear the Champions League anthem, uh, I still get tears in my eyes because it's like so emotional because it's so special. Yeah. And, and, and did you know what you wanted to do after your career? Like, did you know that you wanted to be a sporting director? Well, maybe not because I tried being a coach first. Um, and I worked, I mean, at my time, I, I was a professional football player, but as well in my time, I had to do and I had to work, I had to study. So I was always focusing on doing something beside my career. So I studied um, sport economics, uh, worked in some management positions like um, for like a men's club in Cologne. And I also uh, did my coaching license. So um, I had I have my OA coaching license. And when I stopped my career in Cologne at that time, I tried as well to be a coach for one or two seasons. Uh, but then I felt pretty much pretty fast that that's not, uh, let's say, the life I want to have, uh, because then um, I'm pretty old in a shorter time, I think. Um, no, I think I, I could be a good coach, you know, for young girls. Um, going into, you know, the sporting director, because what, what, what do you think is important for, for a sporting director? What type of like, um, you say, what kind of, what type of person do you have to be, you know? Um, I mean, first of all, you have, you have to handle stress. Um, I mean, it's a, I always say it's a, it's a job which is 24 seven, right? There's no break. And when you think about having the Champions League games, um, you're always traveling around, but you have to work as on the other side as well. So, um, so you have to, um, yeah, you have to manage your, your battery, I would say. Um, I think it's very important that you have an understanding of how football works. For example, I think a coaching license, should be something you have in your pocket to understand the game, to understand, you know, to have, yeah, conversation with your coaches, which is very, very important. Um, and as well for me to be an ex, ex player, I think it's, it helps me a lot to even understand the girls, you know, understand, you know, I can put my, myself into a position and to think about it, how, would I do the things when I was a player, right? So it's it's very good that you're being able to to see everything from different angles. Um and as well, being a football player, you go through so many emotions. You're winning, you're losing, uh, you have injuries, you're like so everything you have to kind of to handle. And I don't think it's so easy if you're not you have never been through this. What's the, what's the worst part about your job? Oh my God. I wouldn't say worst part, worst part because I love my job. I love my team. I love my girls. Um, it's, uh, I enjoy every day working with them. Sure. You have days where, yeah, when you like, I think the worst part is the motion sometimes. Now I give you an example. Today, you know, you're still being in Champions League. Today, you're still being able to win the championship. You're still in the cup. And maybe in two weeks, when we play, had, when we had played all these games, maybe it's over, right? Um, so it's really the change, like this, this, this mood changing from one day to the other and being from here to here. And this is something, you know, to handle, you know, coming home, coming here into the morning. It's, um, this is something 
you have to handle. I wouldn't say worse, but it's exhausting sometimes, the emotions. It's kind of nothing is guaranteed in that line of work. No, it's nothing guaranteed. And as, as well, I wouldn't say you need luck as well, but I think it is like that. You can You can't plan and you can't predict because in football it's not possible so um, you put a lot of effort in and you try to do your job on every single angle in every single apartment but tomorrow morning in training a player player you know is um, whatever breaking their foot and it's changing the whole situation so yeah it's unpredictable you were talking a little bit about, you know, being how an ex player, being an ex player has helped you in, in this, in this, uh, in, in the sporting directing, but as well as, you know, maybe a coaching license. Cause we see, you know, I think you see, you see these, uh, these clubs, maybe some clubs bring in, you know, people that have been in the, in men's football for a while. And there's, you know, a lot of like, yay, they, they, they have a lot of experience, but they might not have experience in women's football. And it's quite different. How, 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 would, you, how, how would you see on that? And what's the importance of having somebody who, who knows women's football and not just some, someone that's experienced football before? If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah it makes sense. Uh, it's more, I would say, it, it depends a bit on the person. It always has to be the right person and the right character who needs to fit into your system, right? Um, I think it is important to bring some sort of knowledge about women's football. And I think if it is it being a coach, I think it's important that the team around, um, I wouldn't, I would never say, yeah, if you have a coach, yeah, who never, um, worked in women's football before, then it's, then is he's not an option. I wouldn't say that. Um, it's important that the team around him or her, um, has knowledge in women's football. Because as you just said, it's different. It's really, it's different. Um, and, and you know, the, let's say the emotions, um, you know, the, the women's, the female body is different to the man's body. So that means you have to adapt training. Um, then the menstrual cycle, you have to that to have to keep in mind that as well. So there's a lot of topics which needs to know on a professional level. Let's talk about one part of your job that I think is extremely interesting. Buying and selling players. What goes through your, your head when, when you like, when when it's transfer season, how huh? you say the word Ooh. is twenty four seven? How do you feel after a transfer season? Well, that's funny that you ask me because but if you would have been asking me this question, I would say four years ago, I would answer, well, you have the season in, in summer and maybe some months before, and then you have that season in winter, you know, in the winter transfer window, and you're starting by you know October November. But to be honest, like the market and the women's football changed so dramatically rapid that transfer market is the whole year. So to be honest, this is a part where, where probably a lot of, lot of things changed. So this is something you're working on the full year, like recruitment, scouting, planning. How does your team look like? Not even next year. How does it look in two or three years ahead? So I would say I'm typical German. Sometimes agents are laughing about me because I'm so structured and so organized and um, I'm very, I'm planning very far ahead. Um, so, but I think it's, it's necessary. You have to have a strategy. You have to have a plan. You have to know, okay, let's say your left bag is 30 years old and maybe plays one or two years. Who will be the one who's, you know, replacing her in one or two years? And who is the one who replacing her in two or three years? So, uh, well, if you have, you can play the most money and probably you can get the best player in the world, but no, it has to be a strategy and has to be fit in your philosophy as well. An ongoing process, so to say. It's ongoing. Yeah, it's, yeah. You manage this process almost every day. And and I must ask when when reading rumors and you see them on social media and stuff like that, how much is truth and how much are you like, oh, this is not true at all? Well, it depends, right? <laughs> it depends on the rumor, I would say. But um, yeah, sometimes I'm laughing and sometimes you're thinking like, okay, well, where they get these information from? So it's quite funny sometimes. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Let's talk just to my last question is basically when you look at the schedule and, you know, the discussions regarding, you know, the gaming or the matching at all. Um, do you think like people would say that there would you would need more harder games on the club side um, and it's being complained on that the that there's, you know, the, the schedule is a little bit, you know, too tight, too many games. What, what's what's your view on that? And do you think that the women's football would need more games within club football? And what do we need to do better? Yeah, it's a hard discussion, right? We have that on every end. Um, I think, first of all, you need competition in your home league, uh, which is important. And I think it's important because you need to grow the league as well. For us in Germany, it's important that, you know, clubs like Leipzig, for example, coming up to the first league or maybe in the future Dortmund to get that competition because these teams are, you know, putting a lot of money into, into women's football. So they, they are developing talents, which is important as well, because I think there are not enough, you know, world-class football players for the, for, for all the amount of teams, you know, they try to get these players. So we have to keep focus on, you know, developing talents as well. Um, so that's why it's, we need to have good competition into the league um, to be accessible. Um, the other topic is for sure, you know, the FIFA match calendar, um, the amount of games, um, the tightness of the games. We have to speak about, um, I think a big thing as well is about when are final tournaments placed. I think to have tournaments placed in, in, in August, um, is not right. Um, and it's not good for the competition, um, and for the um, players' welfare. Um, so they have to move these tournaments, the final tournaments into earlier so that, you know, for example, you have a little break and then you start directly in the final tournament to have enough time off afterwards before you start another season. Um, now with the World Cup, you can see, you know, it ends by <laughs> end of August and most of the leagues starting and beginning of September. So there's not enough rest for players. Same happens with the Olympic next year. So this is a big topic. Yeah, and the amount of national team games as well. Um, I mean, the windows are too much. Um, I, I understand because everyone wants to get something from the cake, right? Um, and it's, I mean, it's important that we find together a solution and not working against each other. Um, and that's, for my opinion, we need to have more conversation and discussion about this that we are in line and not fighting, you know, we as a club and the other fighting for the, for the national team windows. Um, in the end, it's about the player. It's about the human being and it's about player welfare. And this should be stand on top. Yeah. And this is something we always have to keep in mind when we have these discussions and not like, oh, I want to have more games and I want to have more games. Okay, think about how much on how many games players can handle without having rest. <laughs> Because I think it's so interesting. It's been definitely been on the topic here, considering you know the Swedish uh, the Swedish uh, series and the Swedish season ends in November, and if you make it to the Champions League, then you, you'll be playing December. All that, so it, it extends them, and then they start their preseason in February with the Swedish uh, with the Swedish Cup and everything. So I feel it seems like, and and that would be the same thing. Do you think that players are more prone to injuries when the matchmaking is like this and it's so tight? Yeah, I think it's getting worse now, right? Because now you have if you if you even have a Swedish or a Scandinavian team uh, comes to the uh, to the um, to the group phase in Champions League. Now in the next period, you will have the last two group games by end of January. The year, I mean, and this is how <laughs> Scandinavian teams can, can, uh, can work on that. And even our preseason, because we finished just before December with our last game, we have a little bit of a pre, uh, like break. And now we have to shorten this winter break to be able to play Champions League group phase in January. If we go far like this, I mean, you never know, but, um, for most of the teams will be like that. Uh, for the German teams, they will, they have to, um, yeah, to have to shop in the winter break. I mean, I think in Germany, it's a bit of a different, um, situation. Most of the, um, 
leagues in Europe are working a bit different for the French or even the, the Spanish, you know, the English, they're starting early in January. So, but even them, for them, it will change the schedule, right? And when you look at, no, I'm, I'm sorry for cutting you off. When you look at these world, world star players, take some of your players, for example, Leah Schiller, who, who plays, you know, for her national team, you have, uh, uh, Bill, uh, Lena mm-hmm. Magul, you know, all of those, Linda Dalman, all those players that pl- probably, you know, they will play for their national team and they will play for mm-hmm. Bayern Munich as well, you know, and there's only so many, you know, professional, like high, high level players that make it to all the top teams. You know, you, you can't have top players in every team. And I feel like maybe, do you feel like you might get like punished in that sort of sense? Do you understand the question having? Yeah, I understand the question. It's, it's, I totally understand. And it's really hard, right? On the one hand, you try to have the best players in the world in your team. On the other hand, you kind of get punished because they're being away. It's a very, like, it's a very high percentage that the players were getting injured through the season because of, you know, too many games played. Um, and then you have to, and that's a probably a holistic thought as well. You have to think about how can you manage your squad? So do you need maybe five players more in your squad just to being able if the play, if, if you need to rest the players or in, in the league, for example, again, it's maybe lower teams. Just to being able to manage the uh, manage the load. But that being said, we're gonna move on to part two, which is structure, recruitment, and methodology with Mia. And I will mute myself. And with that, we're going back to basics. <laughs> I actually I enjoy listening to the first part when I sit there. But but I would like you to explain to our listeners. What is a sporting director? Well, I, I just try to explain my, my role. So um, I'm taking care about the whole squad planning and the recruitment uh, with my technical director. Um, I taking care as well um, on a, let's say, on a on an overall um, on the sporting um, matters, you know, with the youth and talent um development as well um yeah being in contact with agents um yeah having an overview about you know all the contracts and everything um yeah and being very close with the team so i'm traveling with the team i'm having a lot of exchanges you know with my coaches um we're sitting together with the medical teams and that was a good good explanation uh i often think that we tend to sort of already think that people know uh, what a sporting director is, but there are a lot of titles and different organizations and how you are set up. Uh, And perhaps maybe more within a top women's team uh, than in the men's uh, world, because that's where you already have all these setups ready. And and this is how it's going to look like. But I, I feel that in the women's game, we are free to develop something that could suit the women's game, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's about building, right? I mean, at the time when I came in 2016, uh, they were like, I, not even full-time physiotherapists working here around the team. So we had a huge development and staffing around the team since 2017 when we moved into the campus. So there was a lot of development and movement around the team, but as well in different positions. Um, but then, yeah, it's, it's the point of, of, okay, what do we need around women's football? What kind of positions do we need to fill? So for example, um, I just recently brought in a technical director who really like is taking care about the full recruitment um, and scouting uh, within like the first women's team, but as well could be connected to the youth talent talent um, department, just to make sure that first of all, we're being able to develop talent and to develop homegrown talents, which is very important for the future. But on the other hand, to being able to recruit players who maybe not on the radar yet. Um, because the market is getting crazy, um, prices are getting crazy. Um, I think there are not enough world class players to, yeah, to fill all the teams who wants to compete, compete on the best level. Um, and that, that makes work really hard. So, um, yeah, that's, for example, was, was something we built, um, just recently because we know, yeah, it's needed. Yeah, for sure. And, and could you explain the setup around FC Bayern Munchens? women's first team how many people are you that works with your team 
Wow. Um, around the first team, so we like all the coaches and medical parts. So we have a head coach, we have two assistant coaches, a goalkeeper coach, we have an athletic coach and an assistant athletic coach. Uh, we have three physiotherapists. We have like three to four doctors. It depends what you need. <laughs> um, we have a video analyst. Uh, we have a team manager. We have a kit manager. Um, we have a sport psychologist um, around the team as well. Um, and then, yeah, and then the women's football here is managed a bit different probably to maybe for a lot of English clubs, for example. So we have a really a women's football department, which is dedicated working on women's football within the club. Yeah. And let's talk a bit, uh, a little bit about your academy, uh, because this is, this could be all in my head, you know, about the visibility and everything. So this is not necessarily true. But I do feel that in England, sometimes when you watch cup games, and this could be the fact that we don't have, we are not able to watch every cup game in, in Germany at the moment. But in England, uh, you know, the squads, uh, the, be- the best clubs in England, they take academy players and they even give, give them minutes uh, during mm-hmm. the cups. And then they get a lot of attention, if you know what I mean, from media mm-hmm, and everything. Mm-hmm. And yeah. this could be all in my head, uh, but do you feel that you are good with that in Germany as well? And how do you work with your academy? How how does it look? Yeah, uh, for for example, in our in our like women's football department, we have like four teams, which is the first women's team. We have a second team, which is a U twenty, but that here comes the difference. They play second league. They play just below the first league. Then we have a U17, which um, compete on the, let's say, highest U17 youth level in Germany. And then we have a U16, which is more likely U15, who plays against boys. So they're playing in the boys' league. Um, and when it comes to development, to play for a club like Bayern Munich, there's a lot needed, right, to make it to the first team. Uh, take example, Sydney Lohmann, or now this year, Franzi Kett, which came out of our academy. There are some other players who came in, coming out to, from our academy and they're like training every day with us. Um, they didn't manage to, to play with us yet, but we have a lot of players um, who already trained with the first team. Um, so for us, we try to be very close with each other. Even now with our, with our coach, Alex, he really tries to develop the young, young, young ones as well. Um, and he's not, you know, scared to put young ones on the, on the, on the field. I think it's important because homegrown talent, uh, when it comes to, you know, Champions League rules and homegrown players, you need to provide. And for the whole, we need to develop youth talents because we need to fill all these teams out there. Um, we're known for, for developing female players, um, who are, we have a lot of players who got the, um, education here and then moved to different clubs in the league. But to make it to our first team, there's a lot needed. So we have a little bit of a system that we have some players, they will never make it to first team, but they're good enough to play in the first league team in the league, right? Um, and then we have the other pathway who, players having a great talent, um, playing and training with us who can really make it. So like Franzi Kett, for example. And then you have a third pathway, which is being with our second team, training with us in the first team for one to two years to see how the development, finishing school. And then we decide maybe to put them on a loan deal to get playing time and develop in a different environment, maybe um, to, to grow as well as a person. And then we just, then, um, we look together again. How does it look next year? Is that a player we might bring her back or even sell her or whatever it is in the end? But that's a little bit, you know, the, the, we have, let's say three different pathways for all youth players. Yeah. And this is, is very interesting. I think about the academy players because it's easy to get stuck uh, with the thought that. Uh, every club has an academy to fill their own teams, if you know what I mean, because, but, but having a good academy is business as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you see the market for for that uh, in the future in the women's game? Like because you you can, I mean, if we're being honest, if if we look at the men's side, you can be uh, you can be a a player X in a very good club, mm-hmm. uh, but in in that club you might not yeah. make it. But then you go to another club 
and even win titles with. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but then you you get sold as a player, and that's that's business. Yeah, I think it will come. I think it wasn't a big big thing years ago, but without or with changing the market. Um, And, you know, the prices, um, it's, and, you know, with the regulations on, you know, youth de- development, I think it can be a business in the future. Um, it's not a business for us now, but, um, it's something, you know, we're working like in small steps on it. Um, and I mean, for honestly, I always, I think it's good to see my players who got developed and educated here at Bayern Munich in the league, because I can say that's a Bayern Munich player. She got like all her education and her development here. Um, and it's, we do something for everyone, right? Um, and help even on a loan deal, for example, we help other teams as well. So, um, yeah, I think in the long term, it can be something where you can do business with. Sure. Okay. You, you said it yourself. You, you talked about a Bayern Munich player. Um, describe a Bayern Munich player, both soft, in in the soft values if you know what i mean and in the pl- maybe the playing abilities yeah uh maybe i start a bit different um when you know when you're here in, as a player in this in the environment i think a lot of people said that i probably if you would ask Hannah today or amanda for example you would ask them how was it to be in the FC Bayern environment so the, everyone probably from these guys would say it's special It's it's a family. It's um something which is very close as a team. Um because even everyone is their individual individual, they do a lot together. It's like it's even Bayern Munich is a huge company, huge club, huge brand. But within this, we just like a very tight family. Um, and this is what you, you can feel this every day. So every day, if something has happened, you have people around you who will help. Right. Um, I always said, and I really, I really mean this really honest. I said, you can bring me the best player in the world, but if this player is not fitting into this environment, I would never consider her because I think if you decide for a player, it's, Not just about the playing abilities, you know, as I said, just being the best player in the world, right? It has to be the right character. It has to be the right profile. So it's important if you buy someone, not you're not looking just on the playing abilities about what kind of person is it? What kind of, you know, like value has the person? Um, how is the player being on the pitch and how is the player off the pitch? So if you, if we thinking about a player, we really try to evaluate. Uh, is that. Is that hard or tough now when, because to me, it's also like when I look at the women's game now, the players are also individuals and they thrive outside the pitch as personal brands, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you feel that that is also a part uh, that needs to be looked at when scouting players? And yes, I, I we do, we do that um, because this, Show, I mean, no, it wouldn't, it would not be fair to say, you know, this show the personality and the character of the person because that's, that, that's not true. We know it's always sometimes a big fake world as well, right? Um, and it sometimes it's not even good that there, we all spend too much time on that, but, uh, <laughs> um, but, it, but it still shows you something, right? So, um, and it's something we will, we will have a look like, for example, how a player mm, put herself into let's say Instagram, for example, how the player present themselves. You know, this says quite a lot about a player as well. And this is something, you know, some people would say, are you crazy? You know, you're not taking the best player in the world because he's just a bit different. Different is not the problem because I know you need dif- you need difference on the field. You need different characters. You need different personalities on the field. This is very important. I mean, we're known for different cultures in our team. Um, and, and this is, I totally say it's important. It's, it's great to have that because you build an environment for an, an environment with openness. Um, but as well, you create something, but you don't want to bring in a player who destroy that, right? No, I think that was a very good answer, actually. Uh, I think that's also touched a little bit uh, on your recruitment strategy. 
um, if you know what I mean by, by I mean by that. But mm-hmm. how important do you think it is to gain success um, long term to have a strategy in recruitment? Because we we were speaking a little bit before we we started to record about the fact that if you are a big club with the money, it's easy to just buy the best players because you can. But do you need them? And will they fit? Yeah, that has two aspects. One aspect is probably what I said before. Um, If you put the 11 best players in the world on the pitch, I'm not sure if that will fit. That's the first thing. (laughs) Um, And the other thing is you have to have a strategy. Um, I touched base on it in the beginning. You know, I can't just say, oh, my left back is 30 years old. Um, Well, what I'm doing tomorrow, you know, or in summer, because she might, you know, get injured or she might stop her career. So I have to have a, I should have a plan in place. Like, how does my recruitment look like for a player like her? Who is the next generation who comes in and taking over her place? And that's how I have to develop even players within my system. When it comes to our recruitment and strategy and planning, it's, it's not just like season 23, 24. So that's done. <laughs> that's from, you know, it's done. It, you just have to make, sometimes you have to make, yeah, some, uh, yeah, yeah. Sometimes, you know, you have injuries or, for example, on the World Cup, players are coming back with a big injury or someone wants to get sold, whatever. You know, these are things you can, you have to adjust at one point. But right now we are already planning for, you know, 24, 25. And what's coming in 25, 26, where, which contracts are running out. So it is a process, uh, which needs to taking care of like the whole year. Yeah, for sure. And this is going to be my last question, uh, because I think you have said many good things so far that will wrap this up. Uh, what do you think that women's football need to be better at when it comes to recruitment? And what are we already good at? within the women's game? Uh, yeah, again, recruitment comes back to me in the whole, in the full picture with we need to develop youth talents. We need to focus on developing um, young players. We need to give them access. We need to, to provide them facilities. We need to provide them with the, with the you know, with good coaches. Um, and this is something we have to take care of because as I said, there are not enough talents out there to fill all these clubs who are putting so much money into the game. So our priority now and our focus should be on how can I develop my own talents? Um, and that's, that's a big part of the strategy as well. And it has to be in the future. Um, you know, I would like to say in, you know, three, four, five years, I have like five or six homegrown talents in my, in my squad. I can't do that now because I know it's not possible, but that should be my goal, right? Um, yeah. And when it comes to women's football, um, I think we need to be careful as well. Um, I think we shouldn't stop the development, um, and improvement because it's, it's nice to be part of and it's great to see all the good things, right? But we always have to keep in mind where we come from and we have to keep the heart. And, uh, you know, what made us so different to all the other, you know, men's football out there and, you know, the craziness. Yeah, we always have to, we should always keep that in mind where we come from and that we have to keep that. We have to keep this heart, this ability, authentic. We have to be authentic. Um, the, and even the closeness to the fans. These are things we really need to take care of. Because I see and I, I'm a bit scared of that we're going to lose this. And with those powerful words and a very good message, um, we'll move on to some uh, listeners' questions. What do you expect will be the biggest difference in your line of work in 10 years as like a sporting director, perhaps, I think? Oh, wow. That's a tough question. I'm getting old. So at the, <laughs> 10 years, huh? um, no, if. You have to keep up, right? Because everything is working so fast. Um, you have to take care that, yeah, that, that you're not losing track. Um, and the lineup and, you know, the squad will change within the next years. But I think it's really hard to predict because things we predicted maybe three, four years 
already in women's football and you look at it now, come on, <laughs> that's a craziness what's going on right now. So um, even to predict, you know, how much will a player cost in three, four years? To be honest, I don't think it's predictable at the moment because we don't know how the market will change with you have the World Cup, you have the Olympics, you have the Euros. It's there's so much women football and there will be so much interest. We don't know yet how that how that will be in the next few years. I think it's very unpredictable. But I hope everyone is looking women's football in the TV and uh, yeah, everyone uh, can't get away from it. So that's my hope. <laughs> that's a good hope. I think, and realistic as well. Um, next question is from Melle. How do you feel about the current progress uh, of the five-year plan? Do you think hiring a new coach has set the plan back slightly, or do you feel that the team is still on track? Um, I think the team is still on track. Um, and I'm absolutely not thinking that um, changing the coach stopped our strategy. Uh, Carmen wants to know, when will fans be able to buy women's jerseys away slash third kit as well? Hopefully soon. Um, this is something which we discussed a lot with our marketing uh, recently. Um, and I'm pretty sure that it, that will happen um, very soon. And Andy Minga, with all the different characters of players and staff members, how difficult is it to find the right balance between having fun during the season and the inside plus outside pressure for success. To handle that, you need to have fun. <laughs> That's the most important. You need to you need to laugh. And uh, this is the last one, and it's uh, Nermeen, I think, wants to know, how strongly have you felt the impact of the Euros, and what do you predict for the World Cup? Are the club preparing slash thinking about how to manage bigger crowds because we've seen that the campus is starting to be a bit too small for some games. <laughs> uh, no, I like the question. Um, no, the impact of the Euros was 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 big. Uh, we could felt it right after the Euros. Uh, we normally have, yeah, little preseason games at the campus on one of our training pitches. Very nice, easy to handle, um, and we had to to um, change our our, our uh, games into the campus arena. Because we had so many people who want to watch the team. So we had a game against Atletico Madrid and we're like, what? It's 2000 people just want to see like the, like a preseason friendly. And yeah, you can see, you know, how many fans are coming to and crowds are coming to our home games now. You know, the fans want to get pictures and autographs and even the fan post. We can't handle, handle our fan posts anymore because there we have so many requests on, on fan posts and, and media requests. It's, it's really, it's crazy. So, um, I like the impact um, and I really hope we can manage to to use this for the future and with the World Cup, with the Olympics, with the Euros. So it's a really good sign. And I think um, I have the hope that we will be able to keep that phantom and this, you know, interest and visibility for the future because this is needed and that's what women's football need to grow. Second question regarding the uh, capacity in the stadium. Um, I know this, there's a lot of talk, talks and discussion out there, you know, why we're not doing this and this and because the campus is too small. Our first tar target, to be honest, was to fill the campus stadium for the season. Um, because we weren't sure and it, it was not predictable, you know, there's the impact of the Euros, but how long this impact will um, will have an impact to our games, right? And to the fans and coming over. So, so our first goal was to fill the stadium, which is fortunate, um, quite good at the moment. Um, we fill in the stadium quite a lot often. We have a lot of spectators. But as well, you know, when it comes to development, we're discussing with our marketing and media team and internally, how does it could look like for the future, for example? We know there will be some games where the campus is too small, but in the same way to going to the Allianz Arena with a stadium with a 75,000 capacity and a lot of, you know, costing factor to open the door there. So what's in the middle, you know, what's in between? What can we do to, you know, to satisfy the fans and have a bigger crowds between campus and Allianz Arena, for example? So this is something we're discussing for the future and, um, that's something we have to keep in mind. 
I think we, we discussed something similar with Nadine Kessler regarding, I think, but we discussed it from um, a league point of view. Like, uh, you know, not everyone can play Champions League. Is there a possibility of there being a Europa League or something? Um, but I think when it comes to the capacity of arenas, nobody wants to, I, I think at least nobody wants to sit at, sit at an arena that takes say 40, 50,000 people and they're only being 500. You would rather be at like, I, I guess a smaller stadium and look more filled. Would you say that would be the yeah, case? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I think you have to, it, it's a strategic progress as well. You have to think about, okay, which teams could be possible to play in a different stadium. Who, which game brings possible more spectators? Um, and last, the last years, you know, we, we couldn't even fill our stadium because we just had crowds with thousand spectators, right? And this year, there's a change. So it's a little bit, okay, let's see it, how it works this year. And then we think about the next step and the next step. But you don't want to sit in a stadium with 75,000 and having, let's say, 3,000 spectators. It doesn't really make sense. And even our players wouldn't like it. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's something, what could it be in between? And that's the question. With that being said, we're going to end that section and we're going to go into the last part, which is this or that. Um, because we don't want to go over time too much. It's only, um, it's five questions. I'm going to give you two options. Mm-hmm. And you can pick one or the other and no explanation. Okay. Uh, Allianz or Bayern Campus? Allianz Arena. <laughs> on a day off, would you rather watch football on TV or Netflix and chill? Netflix and chill. Champions League title or league title? League title. Developing own talent or recruiting already young talents? Own talent. Home jersey or away jersey? Jersey. Which one do you prefer? Away jersey. With that being said, Bianca, thank you so much for being a part of this podcast. And that's that's a wrap. I hope you liked it. Thank you very much. It was fun. I enjoyed it. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 